Church, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. If you're new to Redeeming Grace, we've been <clears throat> excuse me, working through the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now. We're coming close to the end of it, but we find ourselves today in Luke, chapter 22. Uh, the verses that we'll be looking at particularly are verses 39 through 71. Luke has long chapters, doesn't he? He's got long chapters, and so sometimes that makes for long text that we want to consider. Uh, but as we do so, we do so in dependence upon the Lord. Grateful that we can spend time in his word. Just as a heads up, coming up in October, we're going to step outside of Luke for the month of October. There's five Sundays in October, ending on October the 31st, which is, in Christian world, Reformation Day. So we're going to be looking at the five solas of the Reformation through the month of October, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We're going to be looking at those five solas, those five alones uh, that were foundational, uh, very much rooted in the Scriptures concerning our salvation. We're going to walk through each of those. Stephen Mason, our brother, will be kicking that off on the first Sunday of October with Scripture alone. We're looking forward to that series and uh, be prayerful in anticipation of it. Our text today is Luke chapter 22. I'm going to begin reading in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and, uh, temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted certainly or saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still, still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is, that, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of, now the, from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Lord, would you allow your word this morning to not only instruct us, but to inform and change us. We ask for the aid of your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand all that's going on around Jesus' arrest, his betrayal, that we would see it clearly and that we would be changed by all that's going on. So Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds now, let us receive your word and let us be changed for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you will remember the story of Joseph from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50, there is a story about a man named Joseph. He's one of the many sons of Jacob. And Joseph, if you remember, was sold into slavery to Egypt by his jealous brothers. They told their dad even that Joseph had died. They sold him into slavery. Go back and tell basically Jacob, or yes, Jacob, that Joseph had died. And when that really wasn't the case, so Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt, over several years, God allowed and enabled him to become a leader in Egypt, second in charge even, where he ended up helping save the region from a severe famine. Eventually, his brothers encounter him as they're seeking out food for help during the time of famine. And it's certainly a dramatic kind of storyline if you read chapters 37 through 50. But by the end of it all, we know that the brothers, they ended up meeting Joseph, understanding who he was, being ashamed of their evil against him. They, in essence, returned to get their father Jacob and all are united together. And Joseph's brothers are particularly fearful at this moment because of the power that Joseph himself now had in Egypt. They're sorrowful, they're fearful, to which he responds to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that, that famous line where Joseph says to them in their fear, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The same thing that you intended as an evil action what you meant for evil, the selling of Joseph into slavery, lying to their father about his, him being dead, all because of their jealousy. What you intended for evil, God has intended. He has meant for good. 
God uses this evil act of the brothers to bring about something that resulted in much good. What you find is injustice, and yet God in the midst of that bringing about good. That's exactly the type of thing we find in our text this morning. On the one hand, the power of darkness is unleashed against Jesus. Yet God is providentially working out a glorious rescue plan that would bring hope, not to a handful of men, it would bring hope to the entire world. So what we find when we come to this text in Luke this morning is that God can be trusted even when evil seems its strongest. And so as we walk through this text, as we walk through this dark and painful moment in Jesus's life and ministry, there's much that we learn from this, all of these encounters and, and much that we learn from Jesus as he walks through it and as he instructs his disciples in it. In fact, we're gonna see a number of lessons as to how we too can trust God when the darkness seems to have the day. I want us to walk through several lessons this morning together. First, first lesson, out of the box is this. It's the centrality of prayer. The centrality of prayer. We find in verses 39 through 46, this scene where after the Passover meal that Jesus has with the disciples, they now go to the Mount of Olives. We know from other gospel accounts that they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and they pray. At least that's what they're instructed to do. Jesus understands the full weight and the full significance of what's about to unfold. And he knows that he and his disciples needed to be prepared for that moment as he exhorts them in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray, and then he withdraws just a little distance away and kneels and prays. The next hours of Jesus' life would be met by betrayal and rejection. He would be arrested and eventually executed on a Roman cross. It was a moment, the moment in history when so much would fall upon the shoulders of Jesus. It would have a direct impact for the disciples who followed him in his earthly ministry and certainly would impact the rest of us today. But one of the things that you see in the midst of all of this, uh, this dark moment, this, this moment of trial for, for Jesus is just how central prayer must be for the believer. Several things that we learn about prayer in this moment. First of all, prayer protects from temptation. Prayer protects from temptation. As they arrive there on the Mount of Olives, we're told in verse 40 again, Jesus instructs his disciples, pray, why? That you may not enter into temptation. He's just watched, Jesus has just seen the disciples go at each other, arguing about who it would be among them that would betray Jesus because he says, one of you will betray me. So they, they begin a discussion as to who that could be and then they end up in a discussion about who among them would be the greatest. So Jesus knows that their tendency uh, to, to, to drift and to, to get caught up in, in trivial matters was high. And he also understood the weight of the moment that was now before them. And so he urges them 
to pray. He knows Judas would soon betray him. He knows that Peter will deny knowing him. And so he calls them to pray. The specific temptation that they faced at this point in this moment was, was the temptation of betrayal and denial. What we find here is, is how God in his kindness has given us the blessing of prayer that we may not give in to the temptations that often come our way. It was the great Charles Spurgeon that said it so well. He said, it is well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of evil. Neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. Jesus understands that. He not only instructs his disciples to pray, he himself prays. Friends, what do we see here? We, we see that one whose mind is stayed upon the Lord, the one who is seeking the Lord, one who is clinging to the Lord, is also one who will be ready, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to stand against that moment of temptation and trial. Brothers and sisters, we often overestimate our ability and underestimate the true nature of the battle that's before us. We do that almost every day. Overestimate our ability. If, if you just look at your prayer life and you find it lacking, I find it lacking in my life. You find your, your prayer life lacking. What you're doing is you're over depending upon your own strength and you're underestimating the, the fierceness of the battle that's, that's before us, the spiritual warfare that exists. We need to remember the reality that the hymnist expressed in the hymn, Come Thou Found, when he says, we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all are prone to wonder. The disciples were prone to wonder at Passover with Jesus, they're arguing about who's great. And prayer is the one tool that God has given us Think about this, friends. Prayer is a tool, a, a, a blessing that God has given us where we can take hold of the throne of God in heaven and plead for heaven's help. Jesus instructed them to stay awake and pray. Pray. Prayer is one of the most essential acts we can do as a believer, and yet it's often one of the most neglected. Prayer protects us from temptation. Second truth that we see is prayer is an act of submission. Jesus does not just offer his advice and go about his way. He, within a stone throw, he engages in prayer in, in ver verse 42. We see that, he withdraws in verse 42 saying, we get the content, at least a snapshot here, a, an excerpt from his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So not only do we see an example of Jesus praying, we actually get the content of what he prays, which is instructive. 
Jesus is feeling the full weight of what he was about to experience and his request that this cup be removed from him, we need to understand. Think about this cup. We understand from Old Testament scriptures, you can go to Psalm 75, verse seven and eight, or you see it in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, verses 22 through 23 where this cup is a reference to the cup of God's wrath, his angry, righteous judgment against our sin, where he judges sin. So Old Testament language, the cup of God's wrath would be poured out against sin. Jesus understands when he's going to go to the cross that that's what he's going to receive from God, that he is going to be a substitute, a sacrifice for sin where the full weight and full wrath of God would be poured out upon him as an act of judgment against sin. So this cup that Jesus references, remove this cup from me. Jesus is not so much fearing death or even the physical pain of suffering he was going to face. He knew that he was going to become the object of God's wrath against sin. And in that moment would feel the utter abandonment of the Father as the full weight of judgment and justice is poured out upon him. This is what Jesus knows that he is about to experience. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, can we do that? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He makes his request, but he immediately follows with a willing submission to accept whatever the Father has decreed for him. Your will be done. Here's my request. He's not afraid to die. Don't read that and think Jesus is, is having a weak moment. He's, he's afraid of pain. No, he, he understands the full weight of what he's about to endure. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He makes his request and immediately follows that with a willingness to submit to his father. He acknowledges through prayer his willingness to trust the father despite what he knew and felt at the moment. There's a lot that we could say about this. One of the things that we could see very clearly from this passage is not only should we pray, but we must be honest in our prayers. We're encouraged, even through Jesus' example here of, of his own prayer, to bring our fears and to bring our doubts to the Lord. But when we do, we need to bring them with honesty and humility. We need to bring it to him and leave it with him. While Jesus requested the removal of the cup, he also remained submissive to the Lord. And that's what prayer allows us to do, to express our concerns and our doubts and our struggles, to, to express those in honesty, while at the same time expressing our submission to God.
It's a way, a way among many others for us to submit to God. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. This is a genuine request Jesus is making, but yet his posture remains one of submissiveness to God. Prayer is, is an act of submission, which leads me to number three, which is very similar. Prayer is an expression of dependence. Jesus takes both this pain and need to God in prayer. He's praying. Jesus knows that, that he's going to go to a cross. And here he is praying, if possible, that it would be removed, that the, the full weight of what he's about to endure would be removed from him. So it's a reminder to us that the that difficulties in life, challenges, the, the pressures that we face, the, the trials that we endure often force us to pursue the Lord in prayer when we should have been pursuing him all along. And, and there's endless distractions that will keep us from praying. You, you see the contrast, don't you, with, with Jesus and the disciples? Notice the disciples, they, they fall asleep. They're just overwhelmed by all of this and, and, and they just fall asleep. It's not a priority for them. There's no sense of urgency here. And you contrast their, their heavy eyes to Jesus's earnest prayer. Look at verse 44. See in verse 43 that an angel appears from heaven to strengthen, and strengthen him in the moment. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. We see that even his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is metaphorical language, it's not literal. It became like great clots of blood dropping, just the intensity of the moment, the, 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 the sweat that is pouring from him in the moment of him crying out to the Father. It shows the intensity in which he prayed. This is the Son of God. the son of the living God, praying like this. He models here with excellency the, the centrality of prayer that ought to be the case in the believer's life because prayer friends, remember, we're not informing God of something he's unaware of. God's sovereign, he's omniscient, he knows all things, he knows more about you than you'll ever know about yourself. So when we pray, it's not as if we're saying, hey, Lord, we're, by the way, <laughs> in case you didn't know, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is a gift, a blessing God gives us to express our need of him and dependence upon him. Jesus prays, he's expressing his dependence upon his father as he trusted in his Father's will above all. He prays earnestly, he feels the weight of the moment and he prays all the more. Do you see that? Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Is that, is that our reflex? The more agony we feel, the more we pray? Or do the trials and the agony and the burdens of this life result in prayerlessness? You see the disciples, they're asleep. The contrast here could not be more visible. Brothers and sisters, think about your own prayer life. 
Think about your prayer life this past week. Just go back seven days, six days. Just think about this week. Don't think about, you can't think about anybody else's prayer life because you're not them, but think about your prayer life. If we could put the transcript of your prayers on the screen right now, let's just start with row one. Vince, you're, you're first. I'm just kidding. If we could put the transcript of your, your prayers on the screen, would it even fit? Would there be a lot of blank space or would you require multiple screens? Would it show that you are staying awake and engaging in earnest prayer or would it show that you're sorrowful and, and, and unengaged and, and you don't feel the urgent need to pray? It's kind of terrifying. If we put your, just think about your prayers. I think about my prayer and, and my, my prayerlessness at times and, and think, wow, if, if people were to see that, what would it say about my dependence upon the Lord? Would it say I'm more dependent upon me, more, more looking to my own efforts and wisdom, which is very lacking, or, or would it show that I am trusting God and following him and, and leaning heavily upon him for everything in this life? What would your prayer transcript say? Would it show that prayer is central, foundational to who you are as a follower of Jesus and that you are clinging to him no matter what? The centrality of prayer. Lesson number one, number two, we see the priority of providence. Look at verses 47 through 53. There's a lot of things happening very fast. We know that Jesus, when he rise, rose from prayer, verse 45, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He exhorts them again. And while he was still speaking, here comes the, the crowd and Judas, the mob, the moment of betrayal. We see a lot of things going on. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, the exact opposite of what that was supposed to indicate. The disciples respond to that with violence as they draw out their swords and one of them, likely Peter, whacks off the soldier's ear. Jesus, we see, responds with compassion and he heals the soul. I mean, there's so many things going on in this moment. And then he proceeds to call out the unjust way that they are treating him. He's, you're treating me like a criminal. In essence, he's calling them cowards. He said, I was in the temple every day teaching and you have to come out to this dark place away from the city to, to do your evil deed. That's, that's a shame. But he concludes, but this is your hour the power and the power of darkness. I want you to see a couple things we need to take note of. First of all, I want you to see a human reality. Three things that Jesus does when Judas and the authorities arrive. In verses 47 through 48, he confronts the treachery. His response to Judas shows how hypocritical and, and, and how evil the act of betrayal was. Jesus, why would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Like, why would you do it like this? And then he reacts to the violence. We, we see those who are around Jesus said, Lord, shall we, you know, they're taking their, their two swords. They have two swords. 
right, from last week. They, they got their sword collection, and, and one of them draws out the sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus corrects that. He's like, no more of this. And he, he heals, the, he puts the guy's ear back on. He reacts to their violence. He, he, he shows them compassion. You, know, you remember Peter, he's the guy that, that cuts off the ear. You know, remember he had just said not too long ago in, in this text, that he told Jesus, I'll go to jail and I'll die with you. He, so far he's making good on his promise, isn't he? So his act is not one necessarily of cowardice. His act is a, an action that is a lack of faith. And Jesus corrects that he, he confronts that in verse 51, no more of this. And he heals the man. But he also exposes the cowardice of the, of the chief priests and the officers and the elders and Judas who had come against him. He calls them out, like I said, with, you come out as against a robber, like, like I'm a criminal. You've done this in secret, in essence, out here in the dark where no one can see you. And when I was in the temple every day, I mean, you had your chance. Why like this? All of these human responses to what's going on here, the betrayal, the violence, the cowardice, all of these things need to be understood. It's important for us to see them and, and to feel the, the, the weight of them. First of all, again, it shows us the deceptive nature of sin. Judas, a disciple, a man who had heard Jesus, we've talked about this, right? Peter and Judas, Judas deny, or excuse me, Peter denies, Judas betrays. Judas had watched Jesus, had followed Jesus, had heard Jesus, had seen Jesus, all of the things, and now he hands him over to be arrested. Friends, it's just a reminder that sin is no small thing. It will blind you, it will deceive you. It also shows us the foolishness of not trusting the Lord. Peter and the others, what happens here in this moment of betrayal when the, when the mob comes against Jesus, they take matters into their own hands, literally, with the sword instead of trusting God. Jesus had instructed them time and time and time again that he will be delivered over to the authorities. And yet, instead of trusting God and believing Jesus' word, they take matters in their own hands and try to fight off the mob. Friends, how often do we do the same? Something goes wrong or something is, is, is amiss, and, and we attempt to correct it in our own wisdom and strength based on our own perspective. Often, by the way, a prayerless perspective. It could be argued that the reason that Peter does what he does here in an act of violence was because he was not prayerful. He was not crying out to the Lord. He was not seeking the Lord's guidance and wisdom and depending on the Lord. His prayerlessness leads to his foolishness. It also shows us the gutless ways of the religious elite and their resolve to put Jesus down no matter what. He calls them out, but then he says, but this is your hour. What, what do you hear behind that? This is your hour and the power of darkness. It's as if Jesus is saying, 
This is your moment. And were it not for the sovereignty of God, you wouldn't have it. You see the, the human reality on display here of, of, of sin and, and, and lack of faith, selfishness. But then you see a holy resolve. Despite all of that's going on, Jesus remains submissive to his Father's will. I mean, he could have called a legion of angels. I mean, he could have taken care of this in a moment. He could have spoken a word and this mob could have ceased to exist for that matter. He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Despite all that's going on, Jesus, what we see, he remains in control of the moment. He's resolved to, to proceed because he understands the Old Testament and the necessity for there to be a sufficient sacrifice for sin. He understands the greater plan at work despite all of the, the pain and the, the darkness that, that is in existence. It reminds me from, it reminds me about Acts chapter two. Interestingly enough, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And in the midst of that, that sermon, he's, he's talking about all the things pertaining to Jesus. And he says regarding Jesus in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What do you see in, in Acts 2 verse 23? What, what you're seeing there described, you're seeing unfold here in Luke chapter 22. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this had to happen because God decreed it and prophesied that it would. The plan of God for the redemption of the world was underway, and yet it would be accomplished, some mysterious act of providence through the hands of lawless men, evil. Crucifying an innocent man is sin. <laughs> it's, it's evil. And yet God in the midst of that, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus would be arrested and he would die, but he would be raised and his disciples would be empowered to take this news to the rest of the world. What we see here is that Jesus is trusting in his father's plan even though it's going to cost him greatly. He doesn't respond with violence. He doesn't call an army of angels to his side. He is given over to the hands of these evil men and trust his father in heaven to do as he has determined. You see a holy resolve of Jesus, the, the priority of providence. Jesus, he, he's responding to the human element that's, that's taking place and yet praying even, crying out with his own request and yet he is yielding to the providential hand of the sovereign hand of God. He's submitting himself to that ultimately. He's not a fatalist. You see him engaging in these human responses. You see him engaging in prayer, even asking for the cup to be removed, and yet he's trusting in God's powerful providential hand. It's instructive to us that we too should trust 
in the plan of God to be unfolded, even when it seems as if things are coming off the tracks. And then number three, we see the reality of rejection. Verses 54 through the rest of the chapter, down to verse 71, simply details for us various ways in which Jesus continued to be rejected, starting with Peter's denial in verses 54 through 62. Jesus predicted this. He foretold this in verse 31 through 34, and now we see it happen just as Jesus said it would happen. He told Peter he would deny him, and that's exactly what you see three times. Verses 55 down to verse 62, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter turns his back on Jesus. Just note, by the way, the, the, the proximity of Peter to Jesus. Verse 54 is a critical verse, I think, because it helps us see the scene a little bit more distinctly. They seized him, Jesus, led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. So far, so good, Peter. I'll go to jail with you, I'll die with you. So far, so good. It doesn't take long for Peter to feel that pressure and to do just exactly as Jesus predicted. We see a couple of things regarding rejection. Number one, this personal rejection. Whether it was with the servant girl or the other individuals, Peter makes clear, this man, I do not know him. I was not with him. You've got things confused. I, I wasn't. I, d I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's important for us to understand that while Peter does deny Jesus, he, it's not as if he's outright denying his existence. He's merely denying association with him and denying knowing him. He sees Jesus arrested and he tags along from a distance, but as the pressure mounts, he caves to fear. One of the most heartbreaking moments in this whole scene is, is in verse 60 and 61. After Peter denies Jesus, knowing Jesus for the third time, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, I can't help but wonder what Peter saw in that look from the Lord. He was close enough. Not only does he deny Jesus, he's not denying him in the next town over. <laughs> he's right there with an eye shot, being able to make eye contact with Jesus. Regardless, though, this would be a turning point for Peter. We know later on, we'll see, Peter's restored, he repents, he would become one of the most important leaders of the early church. Some say the lesson from Peter is a tragic lesson, and in many ways it is. But it's not a tragedy without hope and promise. 
The same Peter that denied knowing Jesus in Luke 22 is the same Peter preaching boldly at Pentecost in Acts 2. He turns his back on the Lord, but the Lord doesn't turn his back on him. And he uses him mightily. Peter stands for us as a lesson of what can happen when we are not actively seeking and trusting in the Lord as we've been instructed and exhorted to do. It's a warning for us that unless we're actively pursuing Christ, unless we're depending upon him and committing ourselves to following him, that even the most committed can turn their backs on him. We see this personal rejection serves as a warning for us and yet it's a warning that also gives us hope. Not only is there a personal rejection, there's also a purposeful rejection. By the time we get to the, close to the end of this chapter, in verse, Jesus is arrested, Peter's denied him. Verse 63, we see that the men who were holding Jesus were mocking him, beat him, they blindfold him, saying, hey, if you're a prophet, who just hit you? I mean, that is just a terrible scene. And then in verses 66 and following, you see that Jesus is now with the assembly of the elders, which consisted of the chief priest and the scribes, all of which were part of the religious leadership establishment. They inquire further about his claim to be Messiah. They, They push in, and so he gives them what they ultimately wanted, not so that they could worship him and honor him, but so they could kill him. Look at verse 67 and following. They say to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But then I want you to notice what Jesus says in the next verse. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's very important. Because his response to them is, one, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. You've not believed me before, you're not going to believe me now. And so this is a false trial. But then he, he responds in, in verse 69 with, with language that is filled with Old Testament imagery. But from now on, he says, the son of man will be sitting at the right hand of the power of God. It's as if he's saying to them, Look to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, this language of the Son of Man, and take Psalm 110, verse 1, that talks about the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God, and you will have a clear picture of exactly who I am. Jesus responds to them in verse 70. So they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Probably taken to mean You are the ones who say that I am, even though you don't believe it. I think this is an important moment for us in Luke's gospel because it's as if Luke, as he's writing this, takes one more opportunity to put before the reader the question that Jesus posed back in Luke chapter 9, verse 20 to Peter. Remember that? To Peter, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And and to Peter, he says, but who do you say that I am? 
the religious establishment has given their answer. He's a blasphemer. But friends, that question remains for you today. Who do you say that Jesus is? When you, you read this text and you see all that's taking place, are you going to take Jesus's word for it that he is in fact the promised Messiah, the son of God come from heaven to be the savior of sinners? Are you gonna believe him? Are you going to remain in unbelief and follow the way of the blinded religious leaders of that day? Friend, you need to resolve the answer to that question. If you are here today or you're watching with our live stream and you've not yet resolved in your heart the truth about Jesus Christ, the, the fact is, is that if you have not committed yourself in faith to Christ, you've not believed upon him to have your sins forgiven, you remain in darkness and unbelief, that there's no neutrality. Not as if we're just kind of in some neutral position and we choose Jesus or choose to reject him. You're born into a life that has defaulted, or your, your default is rejection, unbelief. And so the call to you today would be, as you see all that's taking place concerning Jesus, do you believe him to be the son of man, the promised Messiah, the savior of sinners? And are you willing to put your hope in him to have your sins forgiven and your life transformed? Or will you remain in unbelief? What Jesus was enduring in the moment and what he would endure as an act of sacrificial substitution on the cross as he would take upon the cup of God's wrath, he is doing that for sinners. And so friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus, if you've not found forgiveness and reconciliation with God, then why would you for a moment put that off another day when right here we see the exact plan that God has prescribed for your reconciliation to him? Friend, you know, some people think, well, I'm, I'm gonna still consider that, but, and we get this impression, we get this false notion that somehow we have to kind of wait to clean ourselves up so that we can kind of be somewhat presentable to God. That'll never happen. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all a hot mess. Look at Peter, look at these disciples. broken, sinful, yet God redeemed them and used them. Friend, if you've not trusted in Christ, we would urge you to do that today. Put your faith and hope in Jesus. He is your hope. He is the promised redeemer. Fellow Christians, as you walk through this passion narrative, one of my hopes, one of my prayers for, for my own heart is that it would humble me and that it would humble us that, that, to think that Jesus went through all of this for you and for me. Your pride, your lust, 
your greed, your selfishness, all the ways that you've proven over and over and over again through your acts of betrayal and denial. Jesus endured all of this agony so that he could drink the cup of God's wrath in your stead so that you could be rescued. Christian, that ought to blow your mind that he would do that for you. That ought to be the driving, compelling thing that gets you up in the morning, that presses you forward in the day and all that you do. That he would do all of this for you. Let this remind you, friend, of just how far Jesus went for your good and your redemption. The forces of evil seem to have the upper hand as Jesus is given over to this angry mob. But it's clear, it was God who had the upper hand because he always does. The hour of darkness had indeed arrived, but the plan of God was being accomplished for the good of the world. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this word and for this record of Jesus' suffering. Lord, it's a sobering reality to, to watch and to see the Savior endure all that he did for our sake. Lord, my prayer this morning is simple. For those who would be among us in this room or watching, who continue in unbelief, who continue in sin, Lord, would you show them this morning, would you show them that, that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, that he is the hope for this world, that he is the way the only way through which sin can be forgiven and for sinners to be reconciled to you. Lord, would you open their eyes to that reality and would you draw them to you today? Father, for my fellow brothers and sisters in this room watching, my prayer, Lord, would be that this would be overwhelming encouragement to us. Lord, sure, would you convict us where we are acting foolish like these disciples and like all of these human instruments in this text that we see today, the lack of faith, the deceitfulness of sin, and, and the cowardice that's, that's all present, Lord. Would you confront those realities in our lives, but Lord, also would you humble us with the overarching picture of a suffering Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to you. God, help us never forget that. Lord, when we have grown sleepy towards that, Lord, when our hearts are not engaging with that truth and that reality, Lord, I pray this morning that this text would reignite joy and blessing in all of our lives that we may serve you all our days. Thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you for all that you've given us through Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.